So we have a special treat this morning. I'm going to, uh, I'm feeling in the Christmas spirit. And so um, my, my travels this month are limiting my time here at the church. And so I wanted to be sure we spent some time talking about some of the key texts from Scripture related to Christmas. So we're going to press pause this morning on our study of the end times and, uh, and talk about the birth of Christ, which of course is inherently related to the end times, is it not? Because Christ came once, He's coming again, and, and you need to see those in tandem. So I've got a handout if our guys want to pass those out. If you didn't get one, be sure and raise your hand, we'll get you one. I'm not a big handout guy, as you know, So, uh, but this time I thought, well, we'll give you something to, to fill in. So I put this together, and we just want to walk through uh, the Christmas story and dispel some myths. Um, I don't want to take up much time for announcements because I, I've got it's going to be tough to fit it all in anyway. If we don't fit it all in, I may decide to finish it on Wednesday night, which I know not everybody can come on Wednesday nights. If you can't, uh, then we'll always, it's of course, live streamed and it's also videoed. But hopefully we'll get through it all today. But quick announcement, lots of podcasts this week, uh, several uh, interviews and other uh, guests that we had on our podcast. So check out uh, the podcast at notbyworks.org. Just click on the podcast button on the main menu and you'll see them there. Uh, and then I uh, want to remind you too of uh, some things upcoming. Uh, we'll say more about this in the worship hour, but I want you to make sure you have on your calendar our Christmas Eve candlelight service. And that's going to be a really special time. I did some work on that this week as well. Uh, looking forward to just uh, uh, you know celebrating the birth of our Savior, honoring the Lord, studying what His Word has to say about it, uh, expecting a, a good crowd, so come early, get a good seat. It'll start at 5 o'clock, and that will be our only Christmas service for the weekend, so we're going to take su Sunday off and let you have that time with your families on Christmas Day. So come out Christmas Eve night, 5 o'clock, um, and uh, it should be just a great, a great time together, a candlelight service, and... Uh, uh, just we, we try to start it early enough where you can still get home. If you, a lot of people do Christmas Eve events on the evening with their family gatherings and stuff, so a uh, great way to kick off the Christmas um, Christmas holiday. All right, well let's talk about the Christmas story. We're going to be bouncing around both Luke chapter two and uh, Matthew chapter one. So if you want to kind of keep your thumb uh, between those two, there that would be. Uh, good, and I've just asked a series of questions. I think I've got 20 questions, uh, some of them more basic, some of them a little more involved, and we'll kind of walk through it. So the first question is, what does the word Christmas mean literally? Anybody know? Christ's Mass. Yeah, that's a pretty easy one. Uh, Christ's Mass or Christ's Festival. Uh, so feeling good? You're, you're one for one, right? Okay, good. Well, that's not bad. We could stop there and you'd get 100 on this quiz. All right, number two, which of the following Christmas traditions or symbols uh, were borrowed from pagan groups and which were introduced by Christians uh, after the birth of Christ? So here they are. You've got them on your sheet. Uh, let's start with the first one, the Christmas tree. Is that something that Christians introduced or is that borrowed from pagan groups? Yeah, borrowed for sure. What about nativity cribs? New. That's got to be Christian. Yep, that was Christian. Yep, that was introduced by Christians, uh, kind of commemorating or symbolizing the birth of Christ. By the way, did we find baby Jesus in our nativity yes, here? He's here. He's here. He's here. He's early. Jesus came. Yeah. 
Wow. And I didn't even hear the trumpet. Amazing. Yes. In the eternal. <laughs> Gary. Here we go. The eternal now. All right. I have a question. <laughs> we are not chasing that rabbit. Uh, all right. That's great. Uh, Christmas carols. They were new. And by the way, we're going to be singing Christmas carols next week. We have one today, and we'll sing some more next week. Special service planned next week. And uh, Steve is going to speak. So pray for Steve. We're excited about that. Uh, really appreciate him coming. What about Holly? Very good, yep, and exchanging gifts, that's right, what about log fires, I thought that was introduced by the cavemen to keep warm, uh, what about stringed lights, very good, what about mistletoe, you got it, so uh, now the question then in terms of application here is, uh, does that mean since the origin of some of these things was pagan, that it's wrong to have a Christmas tree? Or it's wrong to, uh, you know, exchange gifts. Of course not. We often take what the devil meant for bad and we use it uh, for good. So uh, we're not legalistic about that, but it's important to understand kind of what, what the cultural history of some of these things uh, are. What about this, number three? Which of the following figures from the Protestant Reformation era would not celebrate Christmas? John Knox would not. Good. Puritans. The Puritans no. would not. And what about John Calvin? He doesn't know. <laughs> he, was pre he, he doesn't, but he didn't have a choice. So yeah, all of the above. None of those folks would celebrate uh, Christmas. Uh, so good. That, that's good. So uh, by the way, Lutherans, Martin, if you think Martin Luther, another Reformation era guy, they defended the celebration of Christmas uh, and it kind of came at it from obviously from a biblical Christian uh, perspective and emphasis. So, uh, number four, where did the idea for Santa Claus originate? Who said Holland? You are way too smart. Way too smart. Do you really? How about that? Huh. All right. Uh, now, match the following Santa Claus counterparts or names that other countries use with their appropriate origin. What about Father Christmas? Very good. What about Kris Kringle? That sounds kind of German, doesn't it? Bifana. By process of elimination, Italy, because Babushka sounds Russian. Right. So, uh, now let's get into the text a little bit. Uh, when was Jesus born? You've heard me talk about this frequently when I'm contextualizing certain books of the Bible or certain first century events like, of course, the you know, trial and crucifixion of Christ and so forth. But uh, any thoughts? September the 11th. <laughs> Not September, yes. It was 5 or 4 B.C., but I'm going to walk you through how to how we get to that. And we can actually be pretty dogmatic about that. It was not April, but it was uh, definitely 5 or 4 B.C. So look at Luke chapter 2, and this is the fun stuff. I love uh, kind of figuring these kinds of things out. So 
First of all, we have some indisputable historical facts that sort of help us frame it. Let's start with Caesar Augustus, which is mentioned in those days. There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. So we know Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor at the time, and he served from 44 B.C. to 14 A.D. So we'll start with the big window, right? Jesus could not have been born before 44 B.C. or after 14 A.D. You with me? And then he mentions Quirinius. He says, uh, uh, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, verse 2. Well, Quirinius served as governor of the Roman province of Syria twice. He served, his first term was in the year from 3 to 2 B.C. And then his second term was in 6 to 7 A.D. Okay, just keep that in mind. I'll come back to Quirinius because this translation is a little bit, kind of leads you in, in the wrong direction. But so now, since Quirinius is involved, we know that it's got a narrower window. And then, of course, Herod the Great was still alive. We know that from Matthew 2, because remember, he tried to kill all the babies. Well, Herod the Great uh, died in 4 B.C. So Jesus had to be born no later than 4 B.C. Remember, B.C. years count down. So the year after 4 B.C. would be 3 B.C., 2 B.C. So that's why we know Jesus could not have been born any later than 4 B.C., um, so let's talk about this decree of Caesar Augustus. Uh, we have historical evidence that uh, Augustus issued a famous decree in 6 AD uh, requiring everyone to be registered. However, there's presently no evidence that he did so earlier. So how do you explain that? Well, the key is un to putting together this chronology where you've got a decree by Caesar in 6 AD, but you've also got you know, the fact that Herod died in 4 B.C., now we're starting to have some, some problems. Um, but it comes down to the grammar of verse 2. In verse 2 it says, the census first took place. See that word first? I don't know how it's translated maybe in, in your translation, but the word first is the Greek word prote, and it means first, but it can also mean before. And so the idea here is uh, this census, the one that he just referenced, that that Caesar Augustus, you know, declared in verse 1, took place before that which took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. In other words, you know, Luke uh, was a detailed historian. He's writing, by the way, in the late 50s A.D. That's when this gospel was written under the inspiration of the Spirit. And as a careful historian, he wanted to anticipate his readers' familiarity with the famous census that everybody at that time many were still alive that had in, in, participated in that census of 6 AD. So he wanted to clarify that the census he's referring to here took place before the one that he decreed in 6 AD. This is a lesser known census. And so then you look at historical evidence, and indeed there was one. So uh, a lot of people just jumped right to the conclusion, well, this was that 6 AD census, and then that kind of throws them off. But if you, if you do your homework and do the history, you understand, no, this, there was another census. So that leads us back to 4 B.C., had to be before that. And so all evidence really points to a birth sometime in the winter of 5 and 4 B.C. It could have been sooner, could have been maybe a year sooner. And some people, I have a good friend that I respect highly that's a great Bible scholar. He teaches uh, at a school I used to teach at. He's been there 20 years now top-notch Old Testament scholar. But anyway, he believes that it was probably the winter of 6-5 B.C. Um, 
because the Magi couldn't have made it all the way from Persia to Jerusalem uh, in time if they didn't have enough time for that. So I suppose that's possible, but the generally accepted date is the winter of 54 BC. Now, what does that mean in terms of implications for understanding the life and ministry of Christ? Well, first of all, we know he died in April of 33 AD. That means he was 37 years old when he died. A lot of people think, well, he was 33, because it was 33 AD, right? And he was born in zero, I guess they think, because we think the year of our Lord. But the problem is that uh, calendar didn't come into effect until centuries later. And when they went back to try to pinpoint the dates and kind of let's start here, marking the year of our Lord, they were just off for a few years. So by today's dating standard, we know Jesus had to be born before Herod died. And so it was probably not long before he died. Also, we'll talk about this in a moment when we get to uh, the Magi and some of these other things. Because, you know, Herod, toward the very end of his life, was, was going nuts. I mean, he was literally crazy. And uh, so I would think probably somewhere between December and probably closer to February, March, something like that, when Jesus was born in the winter of 5-4 B.C. So do you see how we kind of zero in on that based on historical data? Uh, so why do some people claim that Jesus could not have been born in the winter? Have you heard that? Any thoughts? Exactly, yeah. Some people say that Jesus couldn't have been born in the winter because sheep were customarily taken in into enclosures from November until March, and therefore they wouldn't have been in the fields at night. But that's that's a misunderstanding. That's not historically accurate to say that sheep were brought under cover at night. They weren't. What, what, what would happen is they would be brought in from the wilderness during the cold months and be closer to town so that they could be more easily managed. And indeed, if you read the text, Luke says there were in the same country shepherds. Of, in other words, in and around Bethlehem, there were these shepherds as opposed to being way out in the wilderness where they would be. Uh, so, um, and we see some some of the other Jewish writings and customs that we see in the Talmud and the Mishnah, for example, that uh, imply that sheep were definitely outside and around Bethlehem, uh, uh, you know, during that time. So, again, it's uh, accurate then to say that Jesus was born in the winter, and uh, this is in keeping with the traditional date of his that we celebrate his birth December 25th which that date in and of itself is artificial we're going to talk about that next we don't have a inspired writing that says thus saith the Lord but it's certainly proper to celebrate it in the winter because that's uh, when he was born and so speaking of that uh, what's the earliest evidence that we have that December 25th kind of became the accepted date for Christ's birth was it around the time of the Protestant Reformation, when Calvin decreed it, or maybe A.D. 1000 when Gary Mays mentioned it. Well, it was only slightly funny, because there was just a few chuckles, but uh, uh, yes, who said it has to be D? You're right, approximately A.D. 380 Six, when Chrysostom, an early church father, uh, started to uh, to celebrate it. Okay, uh, so that's the answer there. Now, number nine, uh, why was this date chosen to celebrate Christ's birth? Why did Chrysostom and the early church fathers pick this date? 
A, because Christ was indeed... I'm going to read these because some people just listen to the podcast. Because Christ was indeed born in December, or B, to, to counter the Roman pagan festivals during that same time, or C, because that was the only day Santa would come, or D, because it was the day after Christmas Eve. Um, B as in boy? You're right, but also, as I mentioned earlier, A, if this was a quiz, I would count A. I'd give you half credit because you really should. You really should have an E on there. Both A and B are correct. Don't you hate those kind of questions? Yeah. Then you've got to really think through it. But yeah, I think uh, it, he was born in December. They were already aware of that and thinking about it just a couple hundred years after Christ's ministry. And, uh, and then because of all the pagan festivals that were going on, they wanted something that was filled uh, with truth. You had the, the Roman festival of Saturn, which was December 17th to the 24th, Saturnalia they call it. You had the winter solstice. Uh, and so they uh, chose this to kind of uh, have a proper and true reason to celebrate around that time of year. Um, yeah? Where did you get he was born in December? No, not necessarily in December. I said December 25th is an artificial date, but he was born in the winter of 54 uh, B.C. Okay, because you said because he indeed was born in December. Did I? Yeah. Yeah. Let me look. Oh, no, it should. That's wrong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that so that I don't repeat the error the next time I ever use this. It should say, oh, well, I can't, I can't fix it easily right now. But it should, oh, that was a mistake. Thank you. Yeah, it should say in the winter uh, is when uh, he was born. Sorry. See, I, I put this together quickly and didn't catch it. All right. Any other questions about that? Pretty basic. What does it mean to be betrothed? Very good. Yeah, it's very similar to our engagement period. So let me give you a little history here. And I've talked about this before in context of other uh, passages. Uh, but the Jewish law considered an, a betrothed couple to be married. That, that they, would have, they would have, you know, it was as if they were married. But they had a one-year waiting period or a betrothal period uh, before they would consummate the marriage. That's and right. What's that? Test drive. Fast drive? A test drive. A test drive, sorry. Um, yeah, it was kind of like a test drive, but not really. The, <laughs> it was actually more, I don't know, patriarchal than that. It was obviously back then, if you know, they didn't have all kinds of birth control and things like that, if you consummated, a pretty good chance you're going to get, get uh, pregnant. And so they waited a year to make sure that the bride was faithful. Um, that's just the way the custom was. Uh, so they could only break their engagement uh, if the, the, the girl was, you know, either died during the betrothal period or was found to be uh, expecting. Um, so, uh, and by the way, if they broke the betrothal period, if they called it off, that was considered a divorce, by the way, because again, it was as if they were married. They just didn't consummate until after uh, a year. Uh, but uh, before... Uh, after the betrothal, but before the marriage, the, the, uh, legally the man was the husband, so Joseph was her husband during this time, Mary's husband. And, um, and because of the, the strictness of the law and the culture in the Jewish world at that time, if your wife was your wife-to-be was found to be pregnant, you, you really couldn't let that go without action. Uh, it would be a violation of the Mosaic law and be, you know, 
not regarded well. So, here we have Joseph and Mary in their betrothal period. Mary gets pregnant. Joseph had three choices. He could expose Mary publicly as being unfaithful. Uh, and in that case, she might have suffered stoning, although by the first century they weren't really doing that for that offense very often. It's pretty rare. Uh, but at the very least, she would have suffered public shame. A second option, he could have granted her a private divorce, uh, and all he would have needed was a handwritten certificate in the presence of two witnesses, according to Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 to 31. And then his third option was to remain engaged and not divorce Mary. Remember, it was called a divorce. Um, but, you know, this uh, would have required him to break the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 20. So he decided to divorce her privately, if you remember. He, chose, he said, I'm going to put her away privately, but then uh, the Lord got a hold of him and said, no, no, no. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she's obviously she's carrying the Christ child. So it's important to kind of understand that background and culture. Uh, so much more goes into the virgin birth uh, that is so critical for our understanding of theology. Um, we know that from Adam forward, every man is born in sin. And Romans 5.12 tells us it's passed down. Uh, that means it's in the blood. Our blood is tainted. We are sinful. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Christ, who was fully man, remember that's the hypostatic union is the theological term. He's 100% God and 100% man. He didn't leave his deity in heaven when he came to earth. He, According to Philippians 2, he voluntarily set some of the things that he could have done aside, but he didn't, he didn't abandon his deity. So he was... While he walked the earth, he was fully God and fully man. And by the way, he's still fully God and fully man today. The same is true in reverse. When he resurrected and ascended back to the right hand of the throne of God, he didn't leave his deity on earth. He's still fully human because Hebrews tells us only a man can, can serve as the high priest. Every high priest chosen among men, the text says. So uh, Christ is fully human and fully God and yet without sin. Well, how can he be fully man without sin? Had he been conceived in normal means through Joseph and Mary, he'd be in sin like every other human being. But he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's uh, why the virgin birth is so critical. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where after the fall in the garden, God, and I was studying this this week, got it, one of the speakers at this conference I was just at spoke about this, and it was really it kind of got my wheels turning, and I ended up uh, talking about it uh, uh, a couple of people this week, but remember, this is what we call the protevangelium, the first, there's that word proto again, the first reference to the gospel. And uh, because God tells the serpent, because of this, because of what you've done, you know, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, Satan, and her seed, the woman's seed. And he says, one day the woman's seed is going to crush your head and destroy you. Now, what's really bizarre about that, and this would have jumped off the page to the Jewish people reading this Hebrew text, uh, is that the, the seed never comes from the woman. You never speak of her seed. That's improper. So there's a veiled reference to the virgin birth because it wasn't the male seed that was going to produce the Savior and the Messiah and the one who would ultimately destroy and banish uh, Satan. Uh, it was the seed from the woman, but the seed that was, you know, put there through the consummation with the Holy Spirit. So, fascinating stuff. But everybody understands the significance there of the betrothal period and how that relates to 
the story of Joseph and Mary. Any questions or comments? Yeah. Yeah, so the comment is during the betrothal period, the male would you know, build a house and, and get things ready. I think that's part of what took place during that time, but I don't think that was the primary reason for it. The purpose of it was to just you know, make sure they were both pure and that you know, everybody was faithful. All right, number 11. Isn't it on, these are just objections that I've heard through the years. Isn't it unlikely that Joseph would have taken Mary with him on his journey for this census, this uh, time of registration, since it would have been difficult for her to travel being pregnant? Anybody ever heard that or maybe thought about it? Well, it might seem unusual for Joseph to take Mary with him since she was pregnant, but the Romans required every adult to appear in person. And uh, it's also possible that Joseph did this as a speculation, but he might have done it to remove Mary from the local gossip and emotional stress in Nazareth. I mean, it was, it was already awkward enough culturally, but if they're not together, then it becomes even more of a problem. Um, it, but not only that, you know, these were Jewish, you know, Mary and Joseph were devout Jewish people and, uh, and young people, and they most likely were very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, the prophet Micah, for example, said the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. The angel had told Mary that she's carrying in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and uh, 31. Gabriel says, uh, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So she knew that. She knew what she'd been told. She knew the prophetic scripture. So that, that, that's what I'm sure was part of the situation too. But the other thing that this is where so much of our cultural teaching, you know, can kind of become accepted fact. Uh, the songs we sing, the nativity scenes we put up, the, you know, the books that we read. Uh, we need to always take it back to scripture. And a lot of people assume that Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem just before Jesus' birth, like they were just getting into town and they're trying to find a place to stay, and all of a sudden she goes in to labor. But the text of Scripture doesn't say that, and it, it certainly uh, doesn't rule out the possibility that they could have been there for several months prior to when she gave birth. Okay, make sense? All right, number 12. Uh, no room in the inn. What is meant by the term inn? Yeah, traditionally Christians think that it was a, you know, like a feeding trough, like out back in the barn kind of a thing. But most homes in Israel in that day had two parts, one for the family and another one for household animals. And it's possible that that that's where the manger was. The word in is kataluma, and I want you to look up a little bit later in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 22. If you, I don't have it on the screen, but if you want to flip there. In Luke 22, um, verses, uh, well, start out in verse 7. Uh, this is the lead up to Christ's crucifixion. 
uh, so the final week of his life. And it says that then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered a city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of his house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? See that word guest room in verse 11? That's the same word translated in earlier in Luke in chapter 2, kataluma. So it was basically just a extra place where, you know, like today when you have uh, family over or friends over, and, you know, you might have a guest room, an actual dedicated guest room, but if you're like us, most of the time someone's sleeping in a, in a family room or someone's sleeping on a couch somewhere. You can try to find a private place, but it's, it's just a designated place when you have overflow. You don't have a bed for everyone. Um, so there is a, you know, different word uh, that would have, he could have used for the word in, and he didn't use that here. He used the word guest room. Um, but it's probably the case that it was a guest room that you know, was kind of auxiliary to their main living area, and that's where the animals were kept. But you know, they probably would have you know, uh, cleaned it up. Um, the innkeeper has also become kind of a villain in our cultural Christmas stories, hasn't he? But nothing in the text indicates that. You know. not, not like he said, you know, you guys are you guys head to the barn. I'm not giving you a room or anything like that. No, he actually took them in. Um, so uh, traditionally, it's thought to be a cave, but it could have been a guest room in a house. That's the answer to that one. Any questions about that? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the comment is that uh, the, the people have traced the history of the inn. Now, a lot of that, you, when you go over to Jerusalem now, they have these historical markers, and some of that came along several hundred years you know, later, and it's not necessarily you know, true dogmatically that you can trace it all the way back. Um, some of the key locations and stuff, they're more for tourists and stuff, but could be, could be. Either way, it's definitely... You know, I think the Lord in, in this passage and in the way it all came about is, is essentially contrasting the humility of Christ's birth with at his first coming with what will be his coming in power and great glory, as he, he himself describes in Matthew 24. So I think that whatever the details, and we can, you know, just using the word itself, it's, it's definitely some type of guest room or guest area. Uh, it, was, it was humble. Especially because they laid him in a manger. That's why we think that room was where the animals were. It's pretty clear. Um, okay, number 13. How are we doing on time? Good. Okay, what is the significance of the shepherd's visit? The shepherds were... What kind of class of people were they in that, in that culture? Humble and, and even looked down upon. They were unclean. They were kind of socially... People would, would socially distance back then uh, from these uh, people. They had a reputation for being untrustworthy many times. Um, and, of course, they were ceremonially unclean because they were dealing with all these animals. So the significance is God first sent the announcement of the good news, the gospel, to the lowly. 
And throughout Luke's gospel, you know, every gospel writer obviously wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. It's the infallible Word of God, but he wrote according to a certain theme and uh, to make a theological point. And Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, and throughout his book he has a lot of emphasis on the outcasts of society, the lowly elements of society. Uh, David had been a shepherd, uh, but God elevated him to be the ruler of his people. Uh, Christ is the son of David, and he too is, is going to be elevated to be a, a king and the king of kings. Uh, but I think the significance is this is, and not just in Luke, by the way, we see this in all the Gospels, that the self-righteous, pious, sort of high and mighty Jewish leaders and devout Jews of the first century that were unbelieving. Uh, they were thinking they could get, uh, may be made right with God by the law, by dotting their I's and crossing their T's. Those people are the ones that, that Jesus, you know, kind of uh, contrasts with the, you know, tax collectors, the harlots, the Gentiles, and, and you see this emphasis, I've talked about this before, on the concept of worthiness and those who already think they're worthy enough, like Luke 15, the, the lost, uh, what is it, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, those three parables. Um, you know, Jesus says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who changes his mind and comes humbly to faith, than to, than to all these others who think they have no need of repentance. They think they're righteous enough already. And so that's the, that's the contrast. And so... Uh, you know, he, everything about the incredible birth of our Savior is just a foreshadowing of all that's going to happen with his life, his ministry, and ultimately his exaltation. Uh, the cross has to come before the crown. And so he comes in lowly means to the humble, to the outcasts, and uh, the angels declare that to them. Uh, the swaddling clothes. What do we know about the swaddling clothes? What does this foreshadow? Huh. Okay. What's that? Exactly. It foreshadows. Is that the burial wrap or the cloth? Is that what you were going to say? Yep. She beat you to it. You got to. You got to be quick around here. Um, yeah. So um, it, it was normal, and we see this even in the Old Testament in passages like Ezekiel, uh, that mothers would wrap their newborn babies in wide strips of cloth to keep them warm. Warm, But the, uh, the, the, the term swaddling clothes is a Greek word sparkano, which means to swathe. And the Jews also, that word is used to describe swathing the dead in strips of cloth, just as they did uh, their infants. Um, so this is just a foreshadowing that the death would inevitably follow one day of our Savior as he became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes? Yeah, I think that's, that's true also. Um, I think there's a lot of symbolism there um, in terms of him being the Lamb of God and, and lambs would also be wrapped up. So, yeah. Good point. Anybody else? Okay, so then uh, Jesus is presented to the temple. Uh, we read about this at the at the end of uh, chapter uh, two. Uh, 
And we kind of, a lot of times when we read the Christmas story, we, we stop short of this. Um, but verse 22, when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Uh, so this is, uh, under the Mosaic law, a woman would become un ritually unclean when she gave birth to a child, and the parents of a male child were to circumcise him on the eighth day, Leviticus 12. And the mother of a male offspring was unclean for 33 days, according to Leviticus 12, verse 4. Uh, following the son's circumcision. Now, this is not to say that she was a, a sinner, uh, you know, or that so, she had done something wrong. Ritual uncleanness was not the same as sinfulness. Uh, all sin results in uncleanness, and there's various sacrifices accordingly, but not all uncleanness is the result of sin. And uh, Mary's uncleanness certainly was not due to sin, but to her bearing a child. The fact that she became unclean, and here's the significance, the fact that she became unclean when she bore Jesus, testifies to the reality of the Incarnation. Jesus was a real human being. Did you have a question? Yeah. yeah. Um, is there any indication um, how, how long after Jesus' birth that the, he was presented at the temple? Yeah, it would have been on the eighth day. How did that square with them being betrothed at, the, at that point? Would they... Would they go ahead with the with the normal rituals after the birth? Yeah, I think that, that may have been under once she's born, then the law was once he's born and she gave birth. The law is very specific, and it would have superseded any other okay. any other issues. Um, all right, let's see if we can uh, fly through these last ones. The term Epiphany. What does that mean? Uh, I'm going to list these: a Jewish feast celebrating the Israelites' freedom from Egypt, the second Sunday in December. No. Uh, a Christian feast celebrating the visit of the Magi? Yes, that's right. Or a large orchestral performance. Uh, nope, it's uh, a celebration of the visit of the Magi. It's traditionally celebrated on January 6th. Again, when we say traditionally, we just this just means it goes way back in church history. Not a biblical mandate, but it's just something that has been celebrated in church history. Now, who were the Magi? I'm sure that our, our group is smart enough uh, to understand this one. Uh, were they Tibetan kings, Texas astronomers, Gentile astrologers, or Dallas Cowboys linebackers? No, they weren't, although they're pretty wise, too. Uh, no, they were Gentile astrologers, right? Uh, magi, or magoi is the Greek word, uh, the singular would be magos, is the name given by the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and other ancient Near, Near Eastern and even Far Eastern countries to wise men, teachers, astrologers, that, it, that doesn't mean what it means today. It meant experts in the stars. Um, it does not mean kings. Uh, so there are a lot of problems with that hymn. Uh, we might like the hymn because we're so familiar with it around Christmas. Now, we three kings of Orient are. There are a lot of problems with that. There weren't three. Uh, there weren't kings. Um, and that leads us to the next question. How many were there? Uh, three, because that's what the Christmas carol says. Two, because uh, the Greek word for magi is tuski. Well, I just told you what, <laughs> so just told you what the real Greek word was. Uh, uh, oops, I yes. left D on there by mistake. Or many. Which was it? Many. There were many. Um, uh, you know, this was uh, 
evident for a lot of reasons. You know, the fact that Herod, uh, after after they he summoned the wise men, and then they went to see Jesus. The text tells us in Matthew two that they left secretly. Well, that's if there was just three of them, they could have easily, you know, slipped through town. But they had to go out another way because they would have been noticeable, and Herod would have found them, and he would not have been happy. So everybody understands that. Uh, there were not uh, uh, three, even though, you know, somewhere along the line in church history, they gave them names uh, and, and so forth. This is kind of along the lines of the tradition you were talking about, Linda, you know, you know, although this one we know is not true. But, you know, throughout church history, we, we tend to assign extra biblical meaning to some of these things. But there were very many uh, wise men, an entourage. Uh, that came to see uh, Jesus. And uh, they came, by the way, uh, not uh, to the manger. You understand that as well, because uh, the Greek word there is not brephos, which is infant, but paideia, which is child. Plus, they were in the house, the text tells us, not in a manger. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of problems with the traditional understanding of that. Uh, again, not legalistic about it. Sometimes people will put the wise men out with their manger scenes because it's part of the story. But it's also helpful to remember and to teach our young people that you know, they didn't come visit the manger. There weren't three of them, and they gave these, uh, these gifts. Uh, and the significance of the gifts, um, you know, it was very customary. And by the way, it still is in our culture today. But in the ancient Near East, especially when you would approach a superior like a king, you would bring gifts. Like Proverbs talks about a king will, I forget the exact words, but a gift will open up the door of a king for you, something like that. Um, so this is significant because here is baby Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, and uh, so gold represents most likely uh, royalty, and it was probably the gold that financed Joseph and Mary's trip to Egypt when they had to flee uh, Judea. Uh, myrrh, or incense rather, is most likely in, uh, indicated deity. Um, uh, and then, uh, of course, the myrrh, everyone knows, represents his death and burial. It was a spice that was used or, you know, in the burial process. Okay, final one, and then we made it through. Uh, what is the significance of the star? Um, Pretty fascinating part of the story. Uh, I believe it was a supernaturally placed star. Uh, some scholars try to suggest it was a conjunction of the planets of Jupiter and Saturn uh, in the constellation Pisces. Others have talked about it being a supernova, the star that exploded, maybe a comet. I just think it was an actual star, but one that God supernaturally placed in the heavens at the time of Messiah's birth, and then it was also used again to guide the Magi to where Jesus' house was in Bethlehem. Uh, it might have just brought them to Bethlehem and then they had to find the house, but I think the text says it, you know, let's look at it in Matthew 2, it, it references the house. I think it actually led them right to the... Uh, a computer just gave me a no power warning. I wonder if this... Uh, Somehow. Can you see, Mike? It's plugged in here. It's the green one. 
Well, that was interesting. Ah, there it goes. Okay. Sorry about that. We just didn't want to drop the live stream in the middle of it. Um, so anyway, we were looking at Matthew 2, and it says, uh, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Verse 10, verse 11, When they had come into the house, they saw the young child, not the baby. Um, all right. Any other questions or comments before we wrap up? we got a couple minutes here we can cheat. Yeah, Gary. Did you cover frankincense? Yeah, I think so. Well, incense, frankincense, yeah. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The incense there is what I meant. All right. Any other questions? Hopefully this was helpful. Um, you know, again, it goes back to how to read and understand the Bible. Read it in its context. Read it carefully. Observe what it's saying. And then uh, lots more, obviously, that we can say. I'm going to be preaching in the second hour a Christmas message from a non-traditional Christmas text uh, that I'm pretty excited about uh, that I hope will be an encouragement to you. We're going to be in Matthew, just like we were for talking about the wise men. But uh, anyway, let's take, yes? What were the dates on Quirinius again? 3, 4 B.C. I mean, 4, 3, uh, let's see, 3, 2 B.C. Let's, let me get to my notes here. Uh, Yeah, 3-2 B.C. and then 6 and 7 A.D. were, were his two terms. So Jesus was born before Quirinius was governing Syria, which would be 5-4 B.C., before his first term. In verse 2. Okay, well, thank you guys. Let's take a break, and we'll come back together at 10 o'clock. For those of you live-streaming... Uh, we usually kick off the live stream about 10.25 to 10.35 when I get up for uh, the message.